Everybody glad you're here. I thank God for you. Those joining us online, we love you guys. Hey, last weekend, uh, it was so cool. At the end of my talk, uh, it felt like the whole room emptied out. People streamed down to the front. They grabbed one of these light bulbs and a Sharpie and began to write the names of friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members who um, they wanted to see come home to God. And in fact, this week, a bunch of the light bulbs are already up in this gallery right behind uh, that upper section of seats outside. And we'll keep putting them up. I just wanted you to know about it in case you weren't here last week. Uh, just make, or if you thought of other names, just make a beeline down front, grab a light bulb, write the names. When we come in every week, we can see those lights. We can see all the people that we're praying for. It can remind us every day to call on the name of Jesus for family members and friends and neighbors and coworkers who we want to see drawn uh, to him. Uh, today uh, is a baptism weekend. I have a special message for you. And, and maybe this morning when you got up and had your Captain Crunch, wasn't even on your radar that you would be buried with Christ today. But you were on the radar of Jesus. He's been praying for you this morning. And at the end of my talk, I will invite you, as others have this weekend, as people, last five weeks, I mean, man, we're, we're approaching nearly 100 people this year in this church who have given their lives to Christ, trusting in him, surrendering themselves humbly by being buried with him in baptism. Um, in fact, I'd like to pray about it right now, then we'll talk together. Would you bow with me? Our Father and our God, we invite you to speak to our hearts. I mean, from the head to the heart, from the head knowledge to the heart experience, would you speak, Lord? Would you draw us to yourself? Those of us in the room who have already experienced you in baptism, Provoke our hearts to pray. We call in the name of the Lord, the name, Jesus, by which we are saved. In that name we pray, amen. Hey, uh, if you're newer here, you've caught us in a new teaching series called Central Strong, a strong church to help keep you strong. And today I wanna talk about the secret to strength, having the strongest possible relationships. And the secret to the strongest kind of relationship, the secret is trust. And the stronger the trust, stronger the relationship. If uh, trust ever wavers, the relationship wavers. If trust falters, the relationship falters. If trust falls apart, then the relationship will fall apart. Trust is the glue that holds the relationship together, but trust is also what strengthens the relationship. And trust strengthens a relationship not so much by the words you say, but as you demonstrate the trust. Uh, Trust is strengthened, not by words, but by strong demonstration. Um, I love you. Important words, but they're just empty noise without a strong demonstration of trust. And, and it's true for marriage, it's true for friendships, it's true in parenting. But I'd like for you to take those 
relationship in your life and put them on the back burner of your brain, okay? Because what I want to talk to you now about is your relationship with Jesus. Trust is everything. You can have an intellectual agreement that Jesus is I mean, history, we have the facts of history that he died on the cross. His believers assert that he is risen from the dead. You can agree with that up here, but I'm talking about trust right here where you trust that he will cleanse you of all guilt and shame, where you trust that he will forgive you of all sin, where you trust that his joy will be your strength, where you trust that he will be your living hope, where you trust that the superabundant life of Jesus is yours. Right now, his resurrection power is for you right now and that he is anchoring a home in heaven for you where you get to do what you love most with those you love best all in the presence of Jesus. But it's a matter of trust. And when it comes to Jesus, the very first demonstration of trust is surrendering to him in baptism. Very first thing that you do, if you believe, if you trust that Jesus died for your sins and God raised him from the dead, Jesus says the very first thing you do is not pray about it, read about it. The first thing that you do is experience him fully in his death, burial, and resurrection, and baptism. Let me take you to a moment. Jesus is 33 years old. He has spent the last three years of his life investing himself in humanity. He has loved, he has taught, he has worked phenomenal, unprecedented miracles. And he has claimed to be God. And because Jesus claimed to be God, they killed him on a cross. And God raised him from the dead. About six weeks have passed since Jesus has been resurrected. He's about to ascend into heaven where he will sit enthroned at the right hand of God. But before he leaves this planet, here's what he says. Anyone who believes me and is baptized will be saved. Anyone who refuses to believe me will be condemned, will be destroyed. Now, Jesus uses a unique Greek word. Jesus didn't speak English, you probably know. Um, But the Greek word for believe is pistis. And it really would be better translated, totally trust. So let me show you the essence of what Jesus challenged, putting it in a language we understand. Anyone who believes, totally trusts me, that I died for their sins and rose from the dead, And that person is baptized, demonstrates their trust by sharing in my death and resurrection. That person is saved. They get super abundant life right now. Their life gets put on a whole new trajectory. Sins forgiven, passed behind. They're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And this super abundant life will carry all the way into eternity and forever and ever and ever and ever. Whoever believes totally trust in me and is baptized, will be saved. Now, one of the guys standing right there as a very personal friend of Jesus, his name was Peter, and he'd been with Jesus through it all. I mean, every teaching, every miracle, special teachings, special miracles. When Jesus raised a little girl from the dead, Peter was right there. He was there for the resurrection 
And from that point, Mark 16, 16 forward, all of his life, Peter would teach on baptism. And uh, the, the words of Peter have special credibility for me because Peter was a sinful mess, just like me. He was a screw up, just like me. So when he speaks about hope and redemption and recovery and restoration and forgiveness of sin, he's got my attention. Spends all of his life teaching about baptism and preaching about baptism. And though those words were recorded, I want to share with you this morning, Peter is under the breath of God. God is breathing on Peter. I want to share with you what he wrote because it's recorded in God's word. Let's look at the first letter Peter wrote that's in the Bible, in the New Testament part of the Bible. He writes like this, Christ suffered for your sins once for all time. He never sinned. Jesus never sinned, never did a sin, never thought a sin, never said a sin. He was tremendously tempted just as we have been. It's just that where we have failed miserably time and time and time again so that we have to say we're a sinful mess. Jesus never messed it up. He succeeded, overcame sin every time. But though he never sinned, never said a sin, thought a sin, did a sin, he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. You know, that's still the heart of Jesus for you. I mean, he looks down on us now and sees some of you kind of in spiritual limbo, just kind of floating out there. And his intent, the reason he's brought you today, the reason he's been praying for you this morning is to bring you home to God. And that's what the big deal about the light bulbs. We have friends, we have family, we have coworkers, we have neighbors. We want to see them come home. Come home to God. I want to see that text again. Because in this one sentence that Peter wrote, it captures the entire essence of all the Bible. In one sentence, look how he begins. He calls Jesus Christ. That's an indication he believes Jesus is God. You see, in that day, there were all kinds. Jesus was a very common name. Here's a Jesus, there's a Jesus everywhere, Jesus, Jesus. But the son of the living God, that Jesus was the Christ. It means king. It's not a name, it's a title. So the Jesus part, his name, that indicates that he is fully human. You see, Jesus is God who came to earth through human birth. He was a flesh and blood baby, fully human, all his life, in every way. But at the same time, he never stopped being God. And all his life, all the, even on the cross, dying, he is still fully human and fully God. In his resurrection, fully human and fully God. Jesus, Peter writes, Jesus is the Christ who suffered. But wait a minute. Jesus never did anything wrong. I mean, I can understand a really bad person having to really bad suffer but Jesus never sinned, yet he suffered really bad. What's up with that? Here's the question. If Jesus never sinned, never thought a sin, never did a sin, never said a sin, why did he have to suffer? It was for my sinful mess. It was, it was for your sinful 
mess. On the cross, Jesus was paying the penalty for my sin. On the cross, he was taking your place. He was your substitute. He was receiving in his body the punishment for your sin. That's why Jesus suffered. He did it for me. He did it for you. And maybe you want to say to me, well, time out, David. Um, I know a little bit. You want to tell me, you know a little bit about the suffering of Jesus. You want to tell me that, hey, I, I know it was horribly grotesque. You, you, you want to tell me, hey, I know they bludgeoned his head with a club again and again and again. I know they forcibly pulled out his beard by the roots. I know they beat his face beyond recognition. Even his own mom wouldn't recognize him. I know that with nine whips, they lashed his back until it was just a bloody pulp. I know they pressed a crown of thorns on his forehead. I know they drove nails through his hands and feet into blood-stained timber and that he hung on a rugged cross. I know they shed the spear up under his ribs and into his heart. I know about his suffering. That was horrible. How could that be payment for my sin? I'm not that bad of a person. That couldn't be what I deserve. Well, the God of the Bible would passionately disagree with you. I mean, consider, consider the characters that pop up in the opening chapters of God's word. Character number one, Cain, what does he do? He murders his own brother, Noah. Remember Noah, pretty famous guy, said to be the best guy, had the best character of any man in his day. And what does he do? He gets naked, he gets drunk. Well, he probably gets drunk before he gets naked. And he puts a curse on his grandson. There's this guy named Lot. His house is surrounded by a mob. This mad mob wants to sexually assault the guest in Lot's home. So what does Lot do? He says, well, take my daughters and have sex with them instead. Thanks a lot, Dad. Lot's daughters later get him drunk and have sex with him. Is this reality TV or what? There's this guy named Abraham. He is a prolific liar. It's just that every time he lies, he throws his wife under the bus. I mean, puts her life in jeopardy just to save his own skin. The brothers of Joseph, remember him? They sell him as a slave for a pocket full of coins. There's this guy named Judah. One of the brothers of Joseph, Judah, he has sex with his daughter-in-law when she's pretending to be a prostitute. I know I'm leaving out somebody. Oh, yeah, this is a good one. Oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Okay, there's this guy named Jacob. He marries two women. He has sex with each of their handmaids while they're having a fertility contest with each other. Is this reality TV? Friends, this is the opening pages of the Bible. These are not the Brady Bunch or the Waltons. This is more like the Kardashians. These folks need help. These folks, they like need Dr. Lord, Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, Dr. Pepper, Dr. something, save me somebody. 
I mean, why does the Bible in its opening pages have story after story, episode after episode of people who are just sinful messes? Because if you're a human being and you're drawing blood, drawing breath, and blood is beating hot in your veins, you are a sinful mess. But the good news is, Jesus died to pay for your sin. In fact, on the cross, the Bible says Jesus was literally made to be your every sin that you might be made right with God, have right relations. That was a possibility because of what Jesus suffered on the cross. I mean, consider the very, consider the very centerpiece of the Bible, John three sixteen, where scripture says, this is how much God loved the whole world, loved you, loved me. He gave his son, his one and only son, Jesus. And this is why he gave his son so that no one need be destroyed. Remember what Jesus said? Who anyone who believes in me, trusts in me, and is baptized will be saved. Whoever refuses to believe in me will be destroyed. He said, that's not what God wants. Scripture says God desires that no one be destroyed, but that everyone come to Jesus in repentance. But by believing, totally trusting in him, anyone, anyone, anyone can have a whole, that means super abundant life right now and everlasting life in heaven. So God is breathing on Peter. He has preached about baptism. He has taught about baptism. And now he's writing it down. And it has endured for the ages. Let's look at it again. 1 Peter 3.18. Christ suffered for our sins. Every bit of suffering for the bad stuff I've done. Every bit of suffering for the bad stuff you've done. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never, now Jesus, he never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. And you know, God is breathing on Peter and I, I don't know if he's overwhelmed in this moment. I don't know if he sits down, whatever kind of writing instrument he has, but look what he, that's verse 18. Look what he writes in verse 19. Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison in hell those who disobeyed God long ago. What the heck? What's up with that? Jesus goes to hell and, and preaches to prisoners incarcerated in hell? What's going on? What's Peter talking about? Well, he shines light on it in his second letter. This is first Peter. Look, look at a text from second Peter. He writes this way. For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. I know I need Jesus. If God did not spare angels who sinned, he's not going to spare me. For God did not spare even angels who sinned. He threw them into hell. This is not a metaphor. Hell is a real place. Real people go there. It's darkness. It's agony. It's forever. He, he threw them into hell with, in the gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held even yet. The enemies of Jesus, they saw that when that spear was pulled out of his heart and blood and water came out, irrefutable evidence, he's dead, fully, physically dead. His limp, lifeless body removed from the cross, laid out in a stone-sealed tomb. They think they've won. Yeah, baby, give me a high five. Backside, between the legs. They were celebrating we're done with him. It's over. He claimed to be God and we killed him to shut him up. 
They didn't know that Jesus, behind that stone, he's already risen from the dead. He's not gonna lay around there till Easter morning. He is on the move. He's on a mission. He goes to hell to preach to the prisoners there. Now, he's not trying to convert them. He's there to talk smack. He's there to talk trash. He's there to do a triumph, triumphant celebration of his victory over hell and sin and Satan and the grave. And in my imagination, I think maybe his trash talk went a little like this. Hey, I am God. I came to earth through human birth. Did you see that coming? Every day in every way, I battled Satan and sin and I overcame every time for the glory of the Father and for the sake of those who would believe in me. I did the Father's will. I served him all the way to the cross. I died a sacrificial death and God is raising me from the dead. I win, the victory is mine. My shed blood is irrefutable evidence of my victory. I'm stealing the keys of hell. And the next time you see the devil, stick a fork in him, he's done. That's me, I'm sorry, I'm weird. But you know, Jesus is there. In hell, their destiny is sealed. There's no coming back. He's there to establish. God wins. The cross is our sign of victory. And the empty tomb is irrefutable evidence. The empty tomb, the empty tomb. You go to the gravesite of any of the world's religious leaders. There's a dead body in that tomb. Go to the tomb of Confucius. There's a body. It's occupied. Go to the tomb of Muhammad. There's a body there. It's occupied. Go to the tomb of Buddha. There's a body there. Go to the tomb of Jesus. I've been there a number of times in Israel with people from our church outside the city of Jerusalem. The tomb of Jesus is empty. He is risen. He is victorious. He's alive from the dead. And he wants to live in us. So, so get this. Jesus is God who left heaven came to earth, was born of human birth, became a flesh and blood baby for you. He lived a sinless life, battling his way tenaciously through every temptation for you. He died on the cross for you. He preached to the spirits in hell for you. And Jesus rose from the dead for you. Here's what Peter writes. Jesus suffered physical death. He was done, full physical death, totally dead. But he was raised to life by the spirit of the living God. He resurrected. About 40 days later, he ascended into heaven right after he said, hey, anyone who trusts totally in me and is baptized will be saved. He ascends into heaven. In fact, Peter writes this way. Christ is now in heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. All angels, authority, and power are under his control. All for you. Born in a manger of a virgin for you. Lived a sinless life for you. Died a sacrificial death 
for you, preached in hell for you, risen from the dead for you, ascended on high at the right hand of God for you. That's where he's praying for you right now. He's got God's ear. He's at the right hand of God praying for you right now. So how do you respond? How do you demonstrate your trust in a saving Lord like that? Well, I've given you what Peter has written from both of his letters. He did talk about baptism. And what he said was so profound that Dr. Luke wrote it down. It's in the Bible too. But here's what Peter said about baptism. Peter said, God waited patiently. Excuse me. This is still the writing. I got a little carried away. This is still Peter writing in 1 Peter. God waited patiently while Noah was building his ark. He's taking the story of Noah. He's using it to point to baptism. God waited patiently just as God has waited for you. Just as God is patient with you. He waited patiently in the days of Noah. While Noah was building his boat, only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. That, by the way, is what baptism pictures for us. In baptism, we show we are saved from death and eternal doom by the resurrection of Christ. Not because our bodies are washed clean by the water, but because in being baptized, we are turning to God and asking him to cleanse us of our hearts from sin. And when we ask and demonstrate our trust, he delivers cleansing of sin, guilt, and shame every time. Now let me give you what Peter said. And this time I'm right. Okay. Peter said, change your life, turn to God and be baptized, each of you. No exceptions. You know, you know what the excuse that comes up mostly is a person's pride. It's, it's their pride that makes them delay what they should do right now, today. But Peter says, change your life right now. Turn to God right now. Be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? So your sins are forgiven. I've been at the spot. The stones are still there. You can touch the stones where he said, southern stairs outside the, the ruins of the temple in Jerusalem. And if you look down the, 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 into the Kidron Valley from there, it just spreads out. And what you see below you huge, huge number, I, I've never counted them, of what we would call baptistries. And uh, tens of thousands of people are like in this amphitheater, as Peter speaks. Guess how they responded to him say, change your life, turn to God, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Check it out. Acts 2.41, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church when? That day, about 3,000 in all. That's just the men they counted. Um, likely another 3,000 women. Maybe, maybe 4,000 children. Maybe 10,000 people baptized that day. That's more people than were in the two small towns I grew up in as a kid. That's a huge mass of humanity, 10,000 people. But after that, it's episode after episode after episode. Nine distinct episodes of different people and families who surrender their lives, trust in Jesus, 
and are baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And all kinds of people, they are from all walks of life, rich and poor, educated and unschooled, male and female, uh, and an avowed atheist, a, a religious extremist, on and on, dropping their lives, humbling themselves, and joining Jesus in baptism. The Bible opens with those stories of all those people in sinful messes. The book of Acts just continues all these people who find forgiveness and new life in Jesus through baptism. You've got your story. Thank you so much for listening to the Central Wired podcast. Be sure to stay connected with us at centralwire.com and have a great week.